is the Amadon Planet Podcast, episode 22. I'm your host, Joel Amadon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast is a special conversation. It's a, well, really, it's a, it's a great conversation between a bunch of educators. I really enjoyed it. You're going to hear the joy in my voice. You're also going to hear that we are not talking about the global pandemic that uh, is ripple, well, is influencing everything that's going on in the world right now, but as also specifically um, causing ripples throughout the world of education. So to hear a group of educators not talking about the influence of COVID-19 throughout everything is is kind of, uh, it was kind of weird when I was re-listening to it, but the reason why this episode was recorded, um, it was recorded in early March, and we haven't released it to now, as we were waiting for the release of a, a manuscript, an article, a journal article, specifically. So, myself, uh, Dr. Ann Monroe, uh, David Rock, the Dean of the School of Education at the University of Mississippi, and Candice Cook, the uh, um, math coach at Oxford School District, who you've heard on this podcast before, we got together and put together a manuscript, and you're going to hear all about it within the um, within the episode, but... We recorded this before in March, and I was just waiting until the manuscript got released. And you know, since then, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. So again, you're not going to hear a group of educators talking about the global pandemic, and that's going to be maybe it's refreshing to you. I don't know. Um, it was it was a joyful conversation. It's a great conversation that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. And this article that we share, it's about celebrating the struggle really about celebrating struggle within the math classroom, how struggle needs to be a, a welcome and valued practice within the math classroom, where when I consider my own experience in math classrooms, if you struggled, that was like you didn't know what was going on. You didn't belong. You weren't doing mathematics if you were struggling, when now actually that is mathematics. We do need to struggle, and that was always there. It just maybe was hidden from us, or hidden from me at least, in my own math experience. And so that was what the article is about. There's also some struggle dealing with, um, how does the story of the manuscript, which we're going to get to within the uh, episode, but also, I mean, we're currently going through struggle right now and thinking about how do we best educate our kids? How do we, um, how am I personally managing my own kids, my own work and, all the things going on with isolation and trying to shop for food. And, and that's not to mention all the different struggles that are going on outside of my household. And so, you know, thinking about struggle, thinking about that we are going to come out better off and at the end of this thing, we are going to, I mean, even just thinking about my own field of education, think of all the things we're figuring out how to do with this situation that we're dealing with. And so anyway, there is something about Celebrate the Struggle. I hope you enjoy this episode. I enjoyed having the conversation with Candice and Dr. Monroe. And so my hope is that you hear this conversation between us and you kind of hear the joy, but then you also hear how the struggle of this, putting this journal article together and the the talking about struggle in the math classroom, that you see how uh, Ann and Candice and I really are coming together as educators to figure something out with regards to how to put our ideas out there, but then how to really celebrate the struggle in the math classroom. And so I hope you enjoy. We're together again. The band is back together. So we got Ann Monroe and Candy's Cook, and we have been talking about an article for a manuscript and an idea about struggle and shame for a long time. Ladies, thank you for being here on the podcast. 
Thank you for having us. All right. So we're going to, I think, before if we're going to do this well, I think we need to go back. So the whole reason for this podcast is, one, talking about we have a, a manuscript coming out. It's Shame, Shame, Go Away, Fostering Productive Struggle with Mathematics. It's going to come out in the next month or so in the record. Kappa Delta Pi record coming out pretty quick. And we've also been doing some presentations around this work. We did some at NCTM in Nashville. We did some local presentations. And so this has been around for a while. We've been talking about it for a while. We even have t-shirts. I'm wearing t-shirts <laughs> printed up about this, about celebrating the struggle. But this manuscript that it first started off with was handed to me when I got here to Ole Miss in 2011. Right, but Anne, do you have some other background on this? So wh where did this thing come from? Okay, so I guess prior to 2011, and it could have been like two years prior to 2011, I honestly, oh my goodness. It's, it was a while back. Yeah. So I had worked on some research uh, specifically for my dissertation uh, back in 2007 about shame and um, school-induced shame and what uh, college freshmen remembered from their school experience that induced shame and looking at some things that happen in schools that um, induce shame in, in children and those negative effects that 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 shame had on them and their learning and and their experience in school and so um, through that research I kind of looked at a lot of the you know cat things that created this feeling of shame or induced this feeling of shame in in school-aged children and um, academic struggle was one of the categories that I found and in particular mm -hmm. we had a lot of folks that talked about their struggles in mathematics and um, and then through my research and shame I looked at a lot of the issues surrounding uh, illiteracy and mm -hmm. people's shame around their um, the fact that they can't read and yeah. um, started kind of thinking and, and looking about how people have uh, continue this uh, feeling of shame around their inability to read but once they reach a certain age the inability to do mathematics becomes almost a badge of honor and something that yeah. they felt like they're not really shamed about anymore, that they may have felt shame around their inability in mathematics or with their perceived inability in mathematics as a young child, uh, but then that faded as they got older. But if you can't read as you get older, that shame continues, and people yeah, tend yeah. to hide the fact that they can't read. And so this fascinated me with the study of shame and particularly this – juxtaposition between shame and reading ability and shame and math ability mm -hmm. and how the shame and math ability f tends to fade over time and that that's not true with reading and that people have this um, tendency to almost be proud of the fact that they're not a math person that yeah. they're very willing to uh, talk about how um, math they're not a math person I'm terrible at math but nobody would ever say that about reading and so um, I started talking with our dean in the school of education David Rock who's a math uh, person, math professor, everybody's yeah, yeah. a math person, but um, uh, particularly, um, you know, it's written books about mathematics and things like that. And we were talking about this um, kind of phenomenon, I guess you would call it. And right. so the original idea uh, that Dean Rock and I were writing about, we uh, were going to write this piece, uh, is just about this um, difference between reading um Shame around reading and shame around math and the differences. I think you called it the shame paradox. The sh I did. I called it the, the shame, shame paradox. paradox. Well, things have evolved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so then when – and I think we wrote something, actually wrote an, uh, an actual manuscript and sent it off to the record. Yeah, yeah. Where it's now being published. And it was rejected. But they gave some really good feedback. <laughs> they they, did. they liked parts of it. And yeah. they gave some feedback. But 
as things kind of evolved and things got busy, I just didn't have time to really, you know, work on it again and send it back out. And then Joel arrives as the new math kid on the block in the school fresh of ed. Meat. Fresh, fresh meat. meat. I was yeah, like, yeah. hey, Straight you. Straight from Wisconsin. Farm fresh. Take a, take a look at this. And so <laughs> that when Joel gets hold of it, he sees it through his perspective, which is which is different. You know, he has a different perspective about uh that's a what good this, way to put it. What Thank this you. means, different, yeah. yeah, different. <laughs> what this means uh, to him, you know, what this paradox is all about, and then also just taking it in a different. And then I think Joel and I worked on it for a while, and it took it on a different. Yeah, yeah. Life. It it, it did. And um, and I don't even remember. It got rejected a few it more got, times. <laughs> like we sent it back out twice, yeah. and it got rejected. And then. <laughs> Candy's came along in her doctoral program and of course Joel and I know Candy's as a teacher of our children in the uh, school district excellent teacher excellent one of the best one of the best and um and then of course Joel and Candy's have been working closely together on her doctoral program and he said let's pull Candy's in as a like a practitioner perspective and that's when it really evolved into what it is now right. about uh, productive struggle and uh, the avoidance of shame and the and very specifically what the classroom can look like to make this sort of environment that's um, conducive to productive struggle without the the negative impact of shame in the math classroom. Yeah, and so like, so that was the cool part about this podcast. So we're t we, you know we've got these shirts. I think even you even printed off our first presentation. You had like wristbands yeah. that had celebrate the struggle on them, and so we all had these shirts. And and so we were talking about celebrating the struggle and making sure that struggle, productive struggle, is something that we want to celebrate in the class and not want to hide away. We don't. We want to. Um, Say it's not something to be ashamed of. It's it's an actual valued practice in the classroom. And the thing is, we're talking about struggle with regards to math class, but then this article, this manuscript, was a struggle. <laughs> and I remember I remember when I was in my own doctoral program, Candy, you'll enjoy this. Yeah. When I went and saw, I think the guy's name was Michael Olnick, something like that, at the University of Wisconsin. I remember he talked about the life of this manuscript, and he talked about it getting rejected and in like finding different venues and doing all sorts of, sorts of things. And I'm like, who would do that? That is just, <laughs> that's like years of your life. Why would you do that? And yeah. like, but the thing is, you're not just sitting there by the by like the mailbox or by your email, like waiting hitting like on waiting it, yeah. on it. Like it, there's time that goes in between reviews. But it kind of reminded me. My dad called me in middle school. He called me gravel because I got dumped so often. Oh, but true. it <laughs> kind of reminded me of all the rejection that was happening around this manuscript. All right, so, but Candy, so you'll appreciate this. So like when I saw it, the you know when it was the first time I got handed it across and maybe did a, a big rewrite of it, I thought about the idea of struggle, mm -hmm. right? So like the idea of shame and the idea of struggle and like the, what is it? The principles to actions right. was coming out and mm -hmm. we talked about, um, and then also common core. So we had the, in the common core, there was the standards for mathematical practice. Number one, which is make sense of problems and persevere in solving them. Right. And that, uh, and then what was it in the, principles to actions it's shoot now i'm gonna draw a blank we need to foster productive struggle right yeah uh -huh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> foster productive struggle and so those two things put together seem like okay here's where i think the the new stuff that's coming out in math education really speaks to this shame paradox right, right. i agree and um actually just doing this within my classroom it doing the article 
well, writing the article and then seeing the students struggle in my classroom and helping them through that struggle was very important to me because oftentimes students don't want to answer because they have this whole shame thing behind oh, it. Yeah. But um, asking students the questions, the right questions, and talking them through the struggle is very important, yeah. which is the call to action part. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and and that was so even before I knew you as a uh -huh. student um, yeah. and, you know, heard her talk about you as a teacher because we'd have like, you know, like uh, some of our, my students in math methods would be placed with you and like, mm -hmm. oh, we're doing some, you know, like you're wondering, like, are things that I want ha to happen in classrooms actually happening? And then we talk about, oh, in this classroom, yeah. they're happening, <laughs> right? She is fostering some productive struggle. Yeah, and even doing that, like it was hard for me at first, you know, to, to learn the types of questions, the right questions to ask the students to get them to go ahead and answer, even though it may be wrong, but uh, fostering that community within the classroom is very important. That's an important part of this as well. Awesome. That's good. So, okay, so this this podcast episode, where we've got a little bit of background uh, taken care of, and I wanted to go through the categories and thinking about this experience of both even writing the article, you can take that area, or in the article itself, okay. and which is, again, coming out very soon. I think it's in the April, June uh, edition <laughs> of the Kappa Delta Phi record. Yeah, yeah. As long as we don't mess it up here. So, <laughs> but uh, we just got the proofs yesterday, so it's kind of exciting. So, all right. So the high five. So, a couple things from each of us, maybe that we learned either writing the article or in the article itself. So, what what are some things we learned from this experience? And even we could talk about presenting too, if if that is something that comes up. All right. So, who wants to go first? Okay, I don't mind going first. Um, so a couple of things that I think were important from the article was actually allowing students to struggle is an important part of their learning. So not just giving students the answers when they are not getting it correct, um, actually allowing them to struggle and never saying what a kid can say. I don't know if y'all remember oh, that yeah, yeah. article. Love never that say article. what a kid can say. Um, so as far as like taking their pencil out of their hand and actually doing oh, the work yeah. for them, don't do that. Allow them to struggle. And I keep going back to this whole questioning part because that is very important. So you ask the right questions so the students can begin to explain their thinking. That's important. Oh, and another thing, it's important to empower the students through the struggle as well. So meaning um, praise them when they are on the right path to that solution and um, let them know that you're on the right path. We're not quite there yet, but right. you're on the right path to finding mm -hmm. that solution. Yeah. That was one thing that I took from the article. Yeah, I guess, so like, and I know you're a runner too, Candice, but yeah. I'm training for a half marathon and my son did it for the first time, the same half marathon we do it in Springfield, Illinois, uh, last spring. And, um, you know, thinking about this, like, there's a struggle. Like, mm -hmm. you're going 13 miles. There's going to be a struggle now. Like, and seeing him, like, you know, plodding away a little bit, you know, you, what you could do, what? You can go pick him up in the car and, and take him to the finish line. But it's not as good as him doing every step all of his gigantic feet all the way to the end, mm -hmm. to the finish line, and knowing, like, okay, yeah, it might not be the tiny one. It might not be anything, but you finished. You got there. There's some, there's some honor in that. And then thinking about even, too, they might not have the most elegant answer, mm -hmm. But if they come up with something like there, there, you, you did it, you did this right. and you got there. And so now we can, now you can think about how to get better. But like the fact that they actually laid that path for themselves is excellent. Yeah, I think for me, um, what, you know, other than the perseverance, <laughs> you know, kid, uh, 
you know, learning to not let go of a good idea. That that mm-hmm. good idea, um, you know, it may change, mm-hmm. but it's still the the seed of the good idea, which uh-huh. is great. But in and speaking to that, I think the big thing about learning is that the language around shame for me, because that's what I like to look into and that's what I'm interested in in finding out about. The language of shame is different in different contexts. So Mm -hmm. when Joel came along and started looking at the article, the manuscript that I had written with uh, Dean Rock, he saw it from a perspective of struggle. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of struggle had that word would have never come to me because I'm not a math, you know, I'm not a math professor, so I'm not as familiar with like the NCTM uh, principles principles and all that kind of stuff. And so, but then when he started bringing his vocabulary to it, and which brings a perspective, because mm-hmm. um, you know, the, when the language changes, the perspective changes, right. and the way that you say things, you know, impacts the way that you think about things. And so, I think that was interesting. And then when we started going out and presenting it, you start hearing what teachers are saying about it, yeah, yeah. and the language that they use around um, how they see this with their kids. And I think that opens up a whole new um, sort of interesting perspective that I would have never been able to take, even though I was writing about math. Mm -hmm. um, And I had someone who was a math person, you know, in terms of their study of math, deep study of math. It was that other person's perspective that made it into what it is. Mm -hmm. So this idea about a doer. So, like, I had never thought about the word doer before, but it's part of yeah, yeah. the math lexicon if you're, you know, doer of, doer of mathematics. Well, that fell right into line with what, when I study shame about, when you, one thing about shame is that when someone sees themselves as they're supposed to be something and then they feel that they're not, it, mm-hmm. it induces the feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. So, if you feel like you're a doer, you know, it's, it's this, this idea of doer is really a different way of saying what your what you feel your identity is, and then your identity is very deeply tied to uh, what can induce shame in you, mm-hmm. and what can't. Right. And so that's where this whole idea about doer it speaks to this whole idea about how if you how there's a difference with math and reading. So when people everyone sees themselves as a reader or needs to be a reader. Mm-hmm. So if you see yourself as needing to read, and then you see yourself deficient in that area, it produces shame. Mm-hmm. Because you're not what you're supposed to be. You're, you feel like you're not what you're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Right. But doers of mathematics, this idea about doers, children see themselves as doers at a young age. And so they feel shame when they can't or when they perceive that they can't. Right. And then as they get older, they don't see themselves as a doer. They're like, well, other people do math. I, that's not my thing. Right. And so when you distance yourself from the identity of a mathematician, you don't feel as much shame. Therefore, you're free to talk about I hate math, I'm not good at math, or I'm the worst at math, when nobody would ever say that about reading, would never pronounce that in public so loudly and proudly. So this idea of doer is such a parallel with what I'd been studying in shame about people seeing themselves, that the identity, their self-concept, and those kinds of things. And so it's this language. What I learned, I think, is that when when you reach out and bring other people in, they bring their vocabulary. And with that vocabulary comes different meanings, different experiences and different expressions of the same concept but it's not just the same it's different because the vocabulary is different does that make sense that does make sense that was a much more sophisticated way of so so very sophisticated my learning which was like (laughs) do good stuff together (laughs) 
I mean, that's. I mean, I was just going to say, like, it's, like, same thing as what you're going to say, but again, you said it much more eloquently. But like, it's better when there's more voices. Like, the more voices and different perspectives, and we're, mm -hmm. and having, you know, it and it 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 took a, four voices, right, to get this right. over the hump and thinking about all that perspective that people are bringing to it, and you know, just. Because you know we we had basically a, the same manuscript just without candies that got rejected again, and so like thinking about okay, well, how can we add in another voice that's really going to put this over the because we're missing something right we're missing something here mm -hmm. so yep. I, I like the way you brought in the whole doer of mathematics though because students like you said don't see themselves as doers of mathematics even though you're using math every single day in every way time. When you go to the restaurant, you're um, doing tips, or you go to the grocery store and you're yeah, yeah through like the grocery store, you're yeah, just yeah. unconsciously doing this, and students don't see themselves as doers of math unless they're working problems, and that is not what we're. Um, that was not what the focus is here because we're all math people and we right. use math every single day in some kind of way, and students don't necessarily see themselves doing that; they just do it. I was trying to think that of like makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to think of a metaphor and it felt like, you know, I had this my dad said that he was good at math until he had calculus. And then, you know, everything mm -hmm. shut down. So I had this like forebode like this this feeling like eventually I'm gonna hit this like wall somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, it like had some difficulties. But I'm just wondering like if other folks have the same sort of idea where you know, they have this like interstate. That's their math career. Interstate. They're flying at fifty five and all of a mm -hmm. sudden like it's like in Birmingham when the interstate ends, you know, that you one know. place where you had to get off before <laughs> right. they continued it. And, like, it just ends, and all of a sudden it's like, all of a sudden you don't know how to drive anymore. It's mm -hmm. like, no, you know how to drive. It's just different. It's just different kind it's of driving. It's slower going. It's a little bit, you know, you got to make some turns and stuff. And it's like, how do we prepare students? How we show if we don't allow students to struggle and allow them to have some what gravel roads mm -hmm. you know in, in all of all the parts of their math career like yeah there should be some interstate there should be some gravel roads at, at the same time in order to have them have some struggle so they know when big struggle happens like no you're secure i am still a doer of mathematics right. i still know what i'm doing it's yeah. not like everything just disappeared here right, right. any other learnings Oh, I one other thing that I did um, make note of is to say to students to in order to get them to explain more of what they're saying um, is the whole phrase of I don't know. What do you think? You mm, know, just yeah, saying yeah. that, even though I know how to do it, yeah, you know, yeah. I just want the kids to tell me That's their right. thinking behind it. So I'm like, I don't know. What do you think? They're like, Miss Cook, I know, you know, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I really do. But I want to know what they know. So, you know, having. Again, that piece that I'm always going to say, I don't know what are you thinking, actually giving wait time is very important yeah, yeah. in the classroom. Or even, too, like, I don't know what do you think. And then you, you hear their thinking, and it's like that is the, you know, going back to the metaphor, like I had this interstate here, and you went on this back road, but mm -hmm. it has, it is beautiful back there. You know, <laughs> it's there's a beautiful city. You know, like the, just you hear this thinking that's like it's so, it might be like the most inefficient way to do it, but you're like, all the math that that kid had to do right. to get there. Mm -hmm. And if I would have said, hey, do this, and taken away all that struggle, like taking, right. you know, another metaphor, all the shell off the bird, you know, mm -hmm. then that's a weaker bird versus like, wow, you just went and did all this stuff to get to the same point. That's cool. And to honor that and saying that's neat. And like even to share that with the class, like, right. hey, 
listen to this. This is interesting. Even though, yeah, we might have a more efficient way we're going to teach later, mm -hmm. but these different, and then all of a sudden this other kid, well, I had another way. I had another way. Another, and like, it becomes like contagious. Exactly. Um, any other learnings? Uh, the, the other one I had was keep it as close to the kids as possible. Mm. You know, mm. I think one thing that we liked uh, that we did with this manuscript was we put some vignettes of experiences from the classroom, which I really liked. I think that really brought some of the um, the principles and the ideas to life where we and again, bringing in our own experiences from with our own voices. I, I really like that. So. Um, well, that just makes me think of making learning relevant yeah, to yeah. the students and having those real world problems so that they do see what is the point of this math right you know so yeah, yeah. that that just made me think of yeah. that. yeah and then the, the teachers who are hopefully reading the article and like oh, all right what does this actually look like mm -hmm. in practice so yeah. all right so now you know the next category what is something you would have done differently if you knew what was in the article at a time before you wrote it okay i have one for this all right <laughs> um so and this speaks to the doers uh, that we were just talking about. So thinking back on my time as a third grade math teacher, mm -hmm. I taught third grade, so I taught everything. And I, my favorite uh, thing to teach was mathematics. That was my favorite. And, um, and we had a great time doing it. But when I go, when I think back and looking at what we've, we're trying to highlight in this article that we've just uh, published, is this kind of authentic experiences introducing students to authentic problems right so you don't struggle you know the whole idea is to struggle on something authentic something that's a real problem right right and so i, f I wish i had gone back so you're you know the question is what would you know what's something you would have done differently uh if you knew back then what uh -huh. you know now you know and i would have incorporated more authentic problems right i think in my mathematics Versus exercises we talk about the lots of ex i did a lot of great exercises yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we had and you know and i would i used to be so happy with my math teaching and um so proud of it and you know and we had a lot of fun in my room but if i were to go back wow would it look different um there are things that i did that i would not even think about doing now and there are things that i would do differently in terms of creating authentic opportunities to solve real tough problems mm -hmm. and not worrying so much about solutions and not worrying so much about are they getting it you know are they are do they have the answer I want them to have instead of what you were saying Candy's about what do you think yeah. you know I need I needed to do more of that mm -hmm. um, so definitely for me looking at the vignettes that we put in Joel that you were talking mm -hmm. about hearing Candy's experience in the classroom on a daily basis mm -hmm. and getting kind of back into that mindset and thinking about the classroom mm -hmm. really made me think of the missed opportunities um, that, you know, in my third grade classroom. Yeah. And so for me, that's kind of, if I were going to do something differently, um, that's definitely what it would be. It would be this idea of authentic problems and then, then the kids become doers. They see themselves as doers because they're real. They're real world. Like you were saying, Candy's like, they, they do all this stuff in real life and they don't see themselves as a doer because we're not doing it in math class, right? right? We're, not, we're not capturing those as problems. We're not letting them know because they're not doing that in math class. They're doing these activities or they're right. doing these drills or whatever it is. And so I want, I, I think my kids would have seen themselves as doers more if I had presented more authentic uh, problems.
So, and just to add on to that, uh, if you're looking for good problems, we actually have a post at AmazonPlanet.com. Oh, it's on the website. <laughs> uh, AmazonPlanet.com forward slash good tasks. There's oh, a bunch good. of sources. Oh, so good. See, we I will take a look. Ms. Monroe there back in the day. Yeah, back in the day. <laughs> and so, like, uh, and also, too, the, just the difference between problems and exercises for those of you that, you know, might not know. So, exercises, you think about it, you'd had to do, like, what the... 25 problems the odds were in the back of the book sort of thing where you had the algorithm you had the, like the directions you just you did like plug and chug sort of mm -hmm. stuff and you did it over and over again that's an exercise like just doing 100 push-ups you know how to do it it might be hard but you know how to do it versus i've got to find an area of an irregular shape right there's no solution path that's set for you you have to really think you have to problems that you have to think how might i divide it up how what do i know the do i know these uh, different formulas that I'd have to do. Maybe I have to figure out some formula. You know, so like, there's there's like a messiness to it, and I like to call them messy problems too. So anyway, I just wanted to add that on just in case people are thinking. So, Candy, what about you? You got something? I do. Um, so in my early days, like, um, I would have changed giving homework. Mm -hmm. um, so early early on in my career, I would give homework because like. It's an exercise. This is what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But the article talks about using homework as like practice. For example, you practice your instrument. You practice how to play soccer. You you go to football practice. You go to tennis practice. And I would have viewed homework much more as a practice versus this is just for a grade. Mm -hmm. So that was one takeaway from the article for me nice. that I would do differently. Yeah. And I know I've been, since I've been a professor, I've been exposed a lot more to group-worthy tasks and mm -hmm. complex instruction, which is just a way to organize, uh, organize cooperative learning in a more equitable way. I wish I would have known about that work mm -hmm. when I was in the classroom, because again, that was a way where there's many different ways to contribute to a group solving a messy problem like mm -hmm. this, and then that allows kids multiple ways of entry into using the gifts that they have, but also multiple ways to struggle like how do we struggle operating as a group how do we struggle in figuring out this mathematics together and then even just like how we learn like it was better together to to think and uh use our different vocabulary and whatnot right. getting kids to do that in better ways now i did use groups but i think the structure of complex instruction mm -hmm. where it's um designing group work by liz cohen is, is one of the books and then smarter together and strength in numbers are other books we'll put links to these at the show notes at amazonplanet.com <laughs> for this episode yeah. and uh anyway those are all those are all good stuff to i think complex instruction really adds a lot to classrooms um if you have third about it i would go do it and we and we talked about group worthy tasks as well all right you make the call next category what is something you will do or have done differently now that you know in the article or haven't written the article okay so this one's a little different hopefully it won't be too off on a tangent but um we like so this is just something I've been thinking of a lot lately and it this this article is you know part of that thinking uh -huh. um, I've been looking at uh, and studying nonviolent communication and um, reading up on that and kind of discovering exactly what that is and a lot of the things in nonviolent communication are things that I've you know been thinking about and talking about for a while. I just didn't know, you know, it's just elements. Like we said, language, you yeah, know, yeah. people use uh -huh. different words. In there. Um, so thinking about p 
part of nonviolent communication is this idea that we don't have control over people. We have con we have our power over. We have power with, mm -hmm. as in as a teacher in particular. And so this idea of productive struggle and like you said, Candies, tell me what you think or you know what do you think? It's this idea of having letting the children have their own power and control over what they're doing in the classroom. And I think that that our article speaks to this idea of giving up control. Yeah. Right. That giving up power, giving up control as a teacher and letting the students have the power and the control. Mm -hmm. And what can we learn from our students and what do we find out about their misconceptions and what the way they're thinking about things by giving them that power. Um, and having authentic problems and having kids struggle and having their own, giving them the power to struggle and not have to be right mm -hmm. and not looking for something that's particularly specific, looking just for what they're doing with it. That is a way to give students power mm -hmm. and have stu power with instead of power over, oh, yeah. which is part of nonviolent communication. Uh -huh. And I've been talking about this with my students in lots of other areas about classroom management mm -hmm. and how we speak to children and how we, um, you know, deal with behaviors mm -hmm. and even dealing with it in my own life with my own child about, you know, letting him have control and choice and power instead of me having power over you know, what is it that you're going to do? What choices will you make? What happens when you make those choices? Uh, so to me, that's just something that um, I'm going to be continuing to think more about and talk more about with my, my college students that are going to be teachers and talking about how do you have a classroom where you as a teacher have power with instead of power over. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, I think we really need to look at this in general in our society and in our schools in particular in the United States it's not like that everywhere I feel like we have a very punitive system I feel like we have we feel like we need control over children instead of you know power with we have we want power over all the time mm -hmm. and I think that's an unhealthy way of looking at learning I think it's um, I think it has negative impacts for children and I think that that's something that I'm going to continue to work on and read about and see where it leads me in terms of all different aspects of teaching management mm -hmm. instruction um parenting yeah, yeah. you know uh how do we um you know let kids have more power give them the let them have the power they already have but uh, communicate that they do have it and that and that we have a willingness to want to see it yeah. in schools and so um that's you know something this piece i think speaks to is giving power back to the students I think that's an interesting concept that you have there and oftentimes teachers are wanting to know well how can I increase student engagement well doing things that they are already interested in and if you have an issue with um, giving them all the power then at least give them some options here's option a option b option c and they still have some choice in it and that I, I really like that concept that you're talking about there but to me it increases student engagement by you know giving them the power that is already there yeah. you know and, and then one thing about the power structure this power dynamic going back to this idea about shame which is in the the uh -huh. piece mm -hmm. um when you when you take over when you when students feel like that you have power over them they shut down mm. yeah because they're you're judging them at all every turn this and that this is part of nonviolent communication is instead of judging people you listen right you're listening and you're seeing why you know why are they doing that behavior or why are they thinking about the why instead of the it 
right? And so this whole idea about giving them back the power speaks to shame. So if we give them back the power, there's going to be less shame because there's less judgment. When you have power over someone, it's a judgment position. When you have power with someone, it's an equal position. Mm -hmm. And so we're in this together. We're all in the same boat. That's one of the uh, things about shame is that when you when you don't feel that, that when you feel like you're in the same boat with everybody else, then you feel better about it. Right. And so giving the power back actually reduces the shame. And there's you know complexities to that and all that, but that's just sort of speaks to this idea about shame that we have in the article as well. Yeah, and that just uh, made me think about um, you talk about nonviolent communication. Like there's a, a talk that uh, Danny Martin gave at an NCTM. I can't remember two years ago, maybe three years ago. It was about it was on like violence in the classroom, like you know, academic violence, and, and they really showing like you know like ki- children being removed from classrooms. But even thinking about like are we being even violent towards our ideas and things by sh- yes. and like like mm-hmm. I mean and like why would you ever want to express something or or put something out there or even honor your struggle if it's like thrown back in your face like right. how dare you do that you know yeah. it's like. Or it doesn't match my own thinking about mm-hmm. how this should be done. Like, why are we, on, you know, why are we on this gravel road? I got an interstate right here. You know, like going back to metaphor. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. but even yeah, having that sort of idea. Oh, so good. I like that. That wasn't too tangential. That, that was good. I like that too. All right. How about you, Candice? You got one. Um. So, what is something I would do differently now that I know about this article? I think it was very important to know the trajectory. That that was important to me. Knowing what my students should know before and after my grade level like that was something that I, I don't know this article just made me think about when it talked about the trajectory part so um knowing that uh i don't know in math in fifth grade they're going to be doing fractions and then sixth grade they're going to start dividing fractions just understanding what it is that my students should know before and after my particular grade level mm-hmm. was something that was important for me that i took away excellent uh, I went more with the the writing side because I think well, I like to, so I saw this article as something that was in purgatory <laughs> like it was like just this it's like it's a written piece that has it has a home we just haven't found it yet and like I've got a number of things that have a home and they just or that don't have a home that they're in purgatory and I just you get them out because one of it I think there is something about you're talking you're saying some things but if there's ideas that need to be shared you need to work at it to get them out there to be mm-hmm. shared right mm-hmm. and it's like when when students finish their doctoral work here at the, you know, at the University of Mississippi and I'm like you got to get this out yeah. like you found something if you're a, when you get the letters before and after your name and you become a steward of the profession it is your responsibility it is you're, you're a, in being a steward to get these things out you found something you need to find a way to communicate it mm-hmm. whether it's presenting or writing and I remember that when I thought about um Rico Gutstein, he was, uh, he wrote the book, um, uh, Reading and Writing the World. It was basically on teaching math for social justice. I forgot the exact title. But anyway, it's something that really inspired me. And I remember asking him about it, like, so what's next? Like, how do you, what do you do with this? And he's like, I wrote the book. Like, the book is out there. People can play with the ideas, and now they can move it forward. And I'm like, that is the point, is to put things out there and to put, like, your ideas about nonviolent communication, put those things mm-hmm. out there so that other people can engage with them. And so... That's something, just being a little bit more serious about mm-hmm. sharing the work. So, more, more, find more groups to, to write with. Right? So, all right, last one. Sum for seven. How would you sum this up? 
this experience up for a seven-year-old. So my son, Jackson, seven. Going to be eight next week, so we might have to change the category. But wasn't we like some for seven? How about that? What, what do we got? Okay, so for me, I went with a song. So have you all Sweet. ever seen yes. it? All right, yeah, here we go. Have you ever seen the movie Zootopia? Do you want us to hum? Well, <laughs> yeah. maybe. You know, by Shakira, uh, Zootopia, the song okay, yeah, called yeah. Try Everything. And in there she says, try everything, <laughs> you know. And one little part she says, I want to try everything. I want to try even though I could fail. So that was that yeah. would be a seven year old like the song oh, yeah, of yeah. it to a seven year old and I love music. Oh, so yeah, yeah, that would absolutely. be the way to, you know, get it to a seven year old. Go and play that song. Shakira, try everything. Try everything. Yeah. Fantastic. That could be an A P song of the day yeah. coming up. There we go. Yeah. Good. My sum for seven is is very similar to what you were just talking about, Joel, about um you have if you have something to say you need to get it out there. Uh-huh. So what I would in this experience with this article and um and how i would explain it to a seven-year-old is what you have to say is important and valuable and um don't be afraid to say it the way you want to say it um because even though it might be um, similar to the way other people are saying it the way the way that you say it will never be like the way anyone else is saying it does that make sense so Mm -hmm. you're going to add something of value because it's coming from you right and so don't be afraid to you know, have your voice heard and persevere in having it heard. So if it's not heard the first time or published the first time yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the second or the, time yeah. or the third, third time, time or <laughs> the fourth time, uh, it you need to keep, keep at it. If it's important to you and you feel strongly about the message, the way that you're saying it is uh, important. Mm-hmm. And you're probably saying it in a different way than anyone else's. It might be the same message, but because it's you saying it, it has a perspective that only you have. And so keep at it. Y'all did a very good job. I mean, I was thinking about this. And I just think about that you add time and you add effort and you, you extend that. And I've done a lot of things that's been over periods of time, like, you know, either training for something or like dissertation, all this sort of thing. And that's this article being one of them. But like that time and effort, if you keep getting and James Clear in his uh, book Atomic Habits he talked about this idea of if you get 1% better every day versus 1% worse and he looked at the comparison of the two it was like it's phenomenal like what the difference it can be and so just thinking about this idea of let's let's just get better every if we get better every single day we're going to be in a great place and i even talked about that with my teachers like getting better every day and knowing that if i've got an uh, a teacher that's phenomenal but they think they're phenomenal and they're happy with where they're at versus a teacher that, you know, it's not that great, but they keep getting better. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's no contest. That teacher that keeps getting better, that keeps thinking about the practice improving, I'm, I'm, in, I'm buying stock in them, you know, because they're, they're going to eventually pass that other person, you know. And thinking about getting 1% better, let's just get better every single day and keep at it, keep at it. And I think there's something in that perverseness that even a seven-year-old can – Oh, yeah. understand so excellent so this is it thank you thank you oh. for coming on to the podcast i appreciate it uh any any closing remarks anything i just uh want to thank uh you joel and you candies for um helping make this you know helping get the message out um and you know it turned into something i didn't expect it to turn into and i think it's better for it so just like you said happy to get the message out yeah yeah awesome
And I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to even work with you all and um, just empowering me as a teacher, as a practitioner in the classroom, and then even as a, as a current math coach now, I like this empowers me to want to go do more and be better. So thank you for the opportunity, both awesome. of you. That's great. That's what we want to use the gifts we've been given to serve others. That's awesome. That's what we want to do here in the podcast and uh, with uh, this work. So thank you all. <laughs> wow. I, I love I loved the conversation. I just love the conversation. I love the, I mean, and by the, what you can kind of hear from within our talk is we've talked about this a, a number of times. And, and even though we have talked about it a number of times, it was still refreshing to hearing what the different learnings and takeaways that were. And so thinking that just because you work with somebody for a while or you have some sort of exchanges on even even on a certain topic, that there still could be things that come to light. And I, I think that's that's cool that we saw that in that conversation, or at least I saw it in that conversation. And then maybe that we're seeing that now in some of our interactions uh, dealing with how do we best educate our students and, and given our current situation. So um, I enjoyed that conversation. I Hopefully you did too. And Thank you for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate it. So that is all I have for this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. The show notes for this episode, which is full with a ton of links. There's a lot of things mentioned within the episode. So you can find those at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 22. Again, that's amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 22. Uh, if you're looking for ways to support uh, the podcast, you can do a number of things. First would be to subscribe to the podcast. Second would be to rate and review it. We've got a few out there, but it would, I mean, just if you took a moment to go rate and review the podcast on whatever um, platform you use, or even to follow on Spotify, if you're doing that, whatever, whatever it is that you do, if you could do that, that would be great. Gets the podcast some attention and lets other people find it. So especially if you find that there's some useful information through the podcast, that would be a great way to show some support. Also to you could subscribe to something I've just started up. It's called the Amazon Planet Download. It's basically my email list. What I'm trying to do is provide a brief periodic email that contains some teaching resources and then just updates on what's going on on Amazon Planet. You can also follow Amazon Planet on in Instagram, Twitter, or the Amazon Planet Facebook page. You can follow that as well. All that is on the handle at Amazon Planet. You can also, um, you know, interact with me on those platforms as well. I love that. I love especially hearing suggestions or questions or anything that have to do. I mean, I get emails too, but love seeing the interaction on social media kind of gets a, a little bit of a following that way. Finally, if you're looking for ways to support the podcast financially and get your own Celebrate the Struggle shirt, which we mentioned within the podcast, you can go to the Amazon Planet store. There are links at AmazonPlanet.com in the header and in the footer for the Amazon Planet store. You can also go to the, if any of the books that you mentioned, that were mentioned, uh, one, you could support your local bookstore. That would be great. But you could also go to the links, Amazon Planet Books. Again, there's links at, in the uh, show notes for that. Uh, that will go take you to Bookshop, and that raises uh, funds for local bookstores. So if you're looking to do that as well, you could support the podcast and support your local bookstores. So anyway, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast. Thanks to Candy Cook and Dr. Ann Monroe for joining me on this uh, episode of the podcast. And special thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And then finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace.